Okay, let's uh, jump in. You're welcome to go sit at the big table if you want Okay, we're going to start our, our service here, so I'll just pray for us and then we'll, uh, we'll jump in. Lord, uh, thank you for our congregation and the people who have gathered today. We're grateful for your church and your body and your, how you've made us each into uh, the temple, which is uh, the body of Christ. We uh, just pray for, for your spirit to be with us now. Fill me with your spirit, Lord. Help me to speak only truth. And for us to understand you in a greater way when we leave here, and also strengthen and encourage in our Christian faith and our relationship with you. Well, when I went to school, I was um, planning out the services, like who was going to do what on what Sundays. And when I went there, I banked on the fact that when I came back, I would have something to speak to you about that I learned during the course that wouldn't require me to do very much preparation. Because there was no way I was going to arrive on Friday night and then get a sermon together for Sunday. There was just no chance of that. And uh, there's about three or four major things that I learned there that are just pivotal to my understanding of the Bible and who Christ is. And it will really help me as your pastor to, uh, to, to lead and guide you in a greater way. And the, one of the things was Israel's story. Israel's story before Jesus actually came to earth and what they were thinking and what they were expecting and all these types of things. And I don't know about you, but sometimes when I um, like think about the conflicts Jesus has with people and, and the victories he has with people, I'm always thinking, like, why did they not, why did they reject him? And why did some receive him? And why did some people hate him and some people love him? And I just, I was, you know, you hear bits and pieces of things and you try to put a, put a, a story together but it's really great when you have like what I call like a, a clothesline, a start to finish point that you can hang everything off of. And I, I want to share with you what I think is the clothesline of Israel's narrative or Israel's story for why Christ was so controversial and, and what they were hoping for and what they were looking for. And this is actually one of my exam questions. It was worth 20 points. So um, I, this, is, this is my answer on my exam. And uh, although not as detailed as this, and um, and hopefully, actually, now that it's cemented in my head, I'll actually be I'll do a far better job of, of understanding and teaching it to you. So what did you do out of twenty on that question? Well, actually, I got sixteen out of twenty. Yeah. And the reason was actually is because I reversed two things, and I would have got twenty out of twenty if I didn't reverse them. When I came out of the exam, I was like so frustrated with myself, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't forgive myself for three days. Because <laughs> I had all the information right, but I put two things in reverse order and I lost the four marks. Even if he actually, <coughs> anyway, so yeah. In my head it was 20 out of 20. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing like humility and arrogance all mixed in the same bag there. Anyway, so. Okay, well. <clears throat> Here's the, the events surrounding Israel's self-understanding. Basically, everything starts with creation. They, um, Israel understood themselves as being created. Humanity was created by God. Adam and Eve were the first key people. And they understood that as time went on, they ended up rebelling against God. And then the flood came. And it, the flood was Noah, with Noah. And it was God's judgment on the earth for rebellion. 
Well, then Israel understood that because of man's rebellion against God, that God had to do something to save humanity from that rebellion, and they had, God had to start over with a start over with a new humanity, like a new human, like a new human race that could be restored back to God. And every, in Israel, you would understand that person as the restoring of new humanity, new creation was Abraham. You know, with Genesis 12 through 15, God appears to Abraham in a, in a vision, and he, he basically tells Abraham, I'm going to make you um, into a nation, I'm going to give you a seed that's going to come from your line, and in that seed, the nations of the world are going to be blessed. So he promised Israel personal blessings, or he promised Abraham personal blessings, he promised uh, him national blessings, and he promised to Abraham worldly blessings. Uh, and, and so you and I as Christians stand under that Abrahamic covenant as a fulfillment of that covenant. So Abraham is the first person that God uses to restore to try to restore humanity. Well then Israel becomes a nation out of Abraham, but then they go into slavery in Egypt. Well God now has to do something because these people are in slavery and he, as you know, the whole thing with Pharaoh, the, bread, the ten plagues and the Red Sea, and he rescues them out of there. But then they have to now take them to the promised land, which is Canaan, which is what God promised Abraham. He said, I'll make you a nation and give you a land. Well, we had to fulfill that, so out of Egypt they came to um, Canaan, and that was the conquest of the land. Once they got there, though, um, uh, they had to have people to rule them. So David came along as a, as a king that was, uh, uh, this, who was, Jesus was going to descend from, and he wasn't allowed to build a temple. The reason was, is God, when, God, when David wanted to, God said, basically, your hands are too bloody, you've killed too many people, you've had a ruthless life, and so your son will do it. So Solomon comes along and builds this splendor temple, this amazing temple that God actually, in his Shekinah glory, dwelled in, just like he did in the tabernacle. Everything is going well. At that point, Solomon has a huge kingdom. Uh, Israel's more or less at peace. And then they, over time, they go into rebellion against God. So they go back to what Adam and Eve did in the garden. There's this rebellion. And then Babylon comes in and wipes them, takes them out. And they go into exile. So they take it out of their land of promise and they're sent into exile. And so the people are in exile in 587 BC. And that revelation study I did last uh, or two weeks ago, when I wrote on the whiteboard of how that looked, Babylon was the, the first nation in Daniel's dream that was to be the start of these world empires. So they're exiled, and, uh, but then they also had this belief, though, that God was going to restore them. They had this future restoration in mind, and it was a hope for but not yet re a reality. They, they hoped for it, they were always thinking restoration, restoration, but they, never, they were always realizing that it wasn't in their lifetime they were probably going to get it. Or if it was, they knew that it was going to come, but they just didn't know when. So uh, here's a definition then of what it would look like for Israel's hope. If you were a Jew in exile in Babylon uh, in 587 BC, and that was a 70-year exile, by the way, 70 years. So it's a, it's a full, if you were to be exiled as a, and you were five years old, I mean, you, you'd live and die in exile. Like you wouldn't, it'd be something you'd have to hope for for your children, your grandchildren, for God to restore you. But this is, the, this is the thoughts that go through your head as a Jew. Um, you believe that there was one God who had created the world and had chosen as his people, the nation Israel. He had given them a land that was to be governed through his messianic agents, represented by the debated kings. His presence had been taken up re residence in the temple in his chosen dwelling place, Mount Zion. 
from this temple and through his kingly agent, who would be the Messiah, eventually Jesus, um, and his chosen people, his good and just law would extend to bring light and blessing and to restore order to the chaos of the nations, who themselves would come to give him worship. So here's the point. Adam and Eve sin, go against rebellion, against God. God calls Abraham and says, I'm starting over with you to bring salvation to the world, because Adam and Eve were supposed to do that. Um, then he says, uh, yeah, I'm going to use you, Abraham. Israel's going to come from you, and you are to be a light. So I'm going I'm to choose one nation. You're going to operate under my covenants and with me, and everyone else is going to look to you and go, man, I want to be connected to God because of the way you live. Isn't that, isn't that interesting how that works now as Christians too? <laughs> we are called light in the Bible. We're called salt in the Bible. People are to look at our lives with God and say, man, there's something about your life that I want to be connected to the God of the universe. Right? So on the national level, it's, that was what Israel was to be to their nations. But again, they rebelled, didn't fulfill their promises, and so God had to do plan B. Um, so that's what it would look like for you. Um, but the reality was this for them. It was actually mostly defined by despair. There were moments of hope because little things would happen where there was loyalty and like looked like things were going well. But most of the time after the exile was just despair, despair, despair. Um, the reason were, there were, um, was that they were loyal at times, but they were continued in unbelief and rebellion against God. And the last prophet in the Bible, Malachi, actually addresses Israel's situation. He says, here's the reason why you're in exile and you're not going to ever get restored because this is your issue. And he told them this. He said, here's what they were doing. They were, they were bringing diseased animals to their, for their sacrifices instead of their best. They were treating Yahweh with contempt by their failure to tithe. So they weren't giving tithes to God. They were teaching, the priesthood was teaching falsities. There was divorce going on. No fault divorce. Just getting rid of their women because they just didn't want them anymore. It had nothing to do with adultery or anything like that. So they were committing adultery, the, the men were. Uh, there's perjury, lies going on, sorcery, abuse of the poor, injustices, and all sorts of things. And so Malachi warned them and says, um, you guys better smarten up. And um, in, in Malachi 3.1, he said, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. So he warned them, smarten up, quit, get back tithing, quit, start teaching truth. Take care of the divorce. Take care of the widows. Stop divorcing. Take care of the poor. Um, stop bringing diseased animals because he's going to show up one day. And when he shows up, he's going to bring justice to here. And he's going to judge you guys. You do not want to show up when God comes back to his temple because you already know you're in exile because of your rebellion to start with. So smarten up. Not only that, in, the, in, in, Isaiah, in Malachi 4, 5, at the end of the Bible, of his book, he says this. Here's how you know the Lord will be coming to his temple. He will send Elijah to prepare the way. And Elijah was the Lord's great prophet. Okay, so listen to this. The Lord will suddenly come to your temple. That's when judgment and exile will, will, will be at its, come to like a fruition. And Elijah's going to come and prepare the way. We'll talk about that more in a second. So that's the warnings. And then for 400 years, there's no there's silence the intertestamental, intertestamental period is basically the time between the last prophets of John the Baptist. It's 400 years of silence, and God only spoke to the people through the prophets. Now the prophets aren't around, and the people are going, where is God, where is God? So 400 years go by, it's usually called the silence years. 
And, uh, but in that time, here's where the revelation study we did two weeks ago comes in. Nations start appearing. Greece under Alexander the Great, and then Antiochus Epiphanes, which is the guy that set himself up in Jerusalem in the temple and, and put all, erected an altar to Zeus there and told all the Christians or all the Jews to start worshiping him. And he actually said that circumcision was, a, was an absolute blasphemy, or like an absolute, uh, not blasphemy, um, I don't know what the word is, but it was atrocity. And he basically told the women, if you circumcise your boys, I'm going to kill you and throw your kids in there and kill your kids. The Jews, of course, as a covenant sign to God, didn't. So he mass murdered children, mass murdered the women, executed the men, burned the, the Torah, the, their, their, their Bibles in the streets, and set himself up to be worshipped in the temple. It was an absolute devastating time. And um, we talked about that in our, in our Revelation study. And then all of a sudden, Rome comes on the scene. Rome comes on the scene. And that's the empire that's in power when Jesus shows up. And that's 400 years now of those cultures infiltra inf uh, infiltrating and affecting how, what the Jew uh, Palestine looked like in the time of Jesus. Okay. So, let's put a, a one-liner to this. And I'll, and I'll explain to you what, they, what, the, what the belief system was of the Israelites. And, and how this how this plays out. So, Israel's belief structure was this: creational, ethical monotheism, <laughs> resulting in election, covenant, and eschatology. I'm going to make those those terms very simple and easy to understand. And it's basically reiterating everything I just said in another way. Okay? Here's what Israel believed about God: He was creational. That means that the world of the heavens and the earth that we they existed in were created by God. Ethical, they believed that he was a good God and his, his ways were right and he would, he would stand up against rebellion. Uh, monotheism means one single, right? Like, right? They're not plural, so there was only one God. In that day, of course, there are many gods. I mean, the, 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 if you were in ancient, ancient culture in Greece, there was a God for everything. It's like India today. The Hindus, they have hundreds and hundreds of gods and they all believe that God is, this God's responsible for, you know, your furniture and your house and your and the water supply and the sun and the moon and your children, your fertility and all sorts of things. And so uh, they believed only in one God. But again, they they knew that humanity rebelled. So God had to elect someone now or some a nation to fix it. So he calls Abraham um, at the beginning to create a new humanity. And then God confirms Abraham's call when he delivers them out of Egypt. Because when, so the, the, to know that the, you are elect, is, it starts with one person, he becomes a nation, confirmed by his willingness to deliver them from, from, Israel, or from Egypt. And then in the covenant, the covenant's demonstrated at Mount Sinai. Remember this, we did this in Exodus, remember that? He, uh, he has a ceremony at Ex, in the wilderness, and he's, Moses sprinkles blood on the people, and then he gives them the law. And the law was basically God's way of doing life, and that was another shrine of the covenant relationship. But again, due to their idolatry, which means they love things more than God, um, Israel fails, and like Adam and Eve, they're sent out of the promised land into exile. Eschatology just means future. Future hopes, future events. So in their eschatology, though, they knew that through the prophets, God would have to promise deliverance from exile this messianic figure, this anointed one by God, and they believed he was a truly human king, a truly human king to restore Israel and lead the nations from their idolatry and out of exile. 
But here's the three key things. If you can walk away with anything from here, like this, these are some of the three key points I don't want you to miss. They, here's what they believed about this one true deliverer that was going to do that. They believed, when it said in, in Isaiah, or Malachi, that the Lord will come to restore his temple, the Lord in that definition is Yahweh, God. Okay? So God will come to restore his temple. He will send Elijah, this prophet-like figure, to prepare you for that coming. When they heard that, they knew that God used the kings to, to, to rule the nation. So they expected that the Messiah, God would come to the temple again, restore them, but use a human agent to do that. So the Messiah they expected was a human agent, not God. That's really important to understand that when Jesus shows up. And we'll get to that in a second. So they did, not, they did not believe God himself would dwell on earth. They believed that God would use an agent, a human agent, to rule Israel again. Second, they never believed this, the, this, uh, the Messiah, this human agent, would ever suffer. They never believed him to suffer. Do you remember the road to Emmaus? Uh, do you remember Dan's sermon about a year or so ago at the combined service? He talked about this. What would, when the guys were walking back from the road to Emmaus... Jesus appears to them on the, on the road and starts talking to them, and, and they don't recognize him. And he says, what's going on, you guys? And he goes, have you not been around? Have you not seen the events that happened in Jerusalem lately? And then he goes, what events? Like, Jesus is playing dumb. And he says, yeah, this, this, Jesus, this Jesus, our hopes and our dreams that were in this guy, and he suffered and was crucified. In other words, they weren't expecting a suffering Messiah. That was their problem. That's why they were all walking with their tail between their legs after the, the crucifixion, because they never expected Jesus ever to die. Even though he predicted three times in the Gospel of Mark to his disciples they would die, they did not understand it. And because in their heads, their worldview was completely this human agent who's going to come, he's never going to suffer. In fact, they believed that the human agent was going to cause other people to suffer. Because if the nations are, ju are, are, are like judging Israel and oppressing Israel, if Rome in that time was oppressing Israel, if anything, the, the Messiah was going to make other people suffer for their, 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 the way they've taken control of Israel. They never expected him to be the, the one who suffered. So the Messiah was to be a human agent, never to suffer, and the Messiah was to rule over Israel only. It was only for Israel, for no other nation. No other nation was to benefit from, from the Messiah, except that when, after he judged everyone, the nations would come and worship God because this Messiah was so powerful. So they, didn't, they believed in the in inclusivity of the Messiah's rule. Those are three significant things. And if you're already thinking in your head, you can see why maybe the people in Jerusalem had a hard time with Jesus. Because he's, he was, he, what, he, what did he claim? Did he ever claim to be human? Or, or That wasn't, he knew he was human, but it was his claims to be God that got him in trouble. Secondly, he told them over and over, I'm going to suffer. And what happened? He did, and they were all couldn't believe it. And third, when, when, he, when he said that he, would, he was saving, when people would come to him that were non-Jewish in Israel, and he was saving them and allowing them to be in relationship with him, the Jewish people hated him for it. The, I've, we've, we've looked at different examples of, um, of, of Jesus. Uh, you may not all remember them all, but I've preached on sermons where he saved Gentile people. Um, the woman in, um, in Syria. That, that, anyway, I'll, I'll leave it at that. But basically, again, he, he just, everything he did challenged those three aspects of who he was. 
let's just talk about one more thing here, though. Um, can you just put forward the... Okay, I'll, be, I'll, I'll get to it in one second. Here's the thing, though, about Jesus. He promised, he said that he would, he would um, you know, he claimed to be God, he claimed he would suffer, he claimed that his salvation was for everyone. God had already promised and shown Israel different parts about him and how he would deal with their sin already in, in, their, in their history. He, God had already prepared Israel for the things and the personhood of and the deity of who Jesus was. I'll give you an example of how God had already trained them to understand Jesus. The sacrificial system to the Jews taught them what? When you were in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, what, if you were to do an Old Testament sacrifice, what, were you, what was God teaching you through that? Sacrifice required for sin. <laughs> right, so sacrifice required for sin. So you were taught that you had sin that God had to deal with. What else? One more part of that. How could the, how, what was the sacrifice teaching in terms of how the sin would be dealt with? Blood, death. Substitution. You could be restored to God if somebody or some, this animal um, was to be substituted in your place for the sins that you've done. So basically this, um, that rest, repentance and restoration was possible to the offerer through the suffering and death of an innocent substitute. So that's already in their head. Number two, um, if they believe that the exile was basically God's judgment on them and that death was the result, the return from exile was seen as a resurrection. So in the Jewish head, one of the greatest things I learned at the Course is that they believed in resurrection. But when you and I think of resurrection, we think of life from the dead. Their resurrection belief was more a restoration of Israel from exile. So when you think resurrection, you don't ever think Canada restored to like independence. As a Jew, you believe that the resurrection was the restoration of Israel from exile. And those who had been martyred, who died in the past, when the Messiah showed up, would raise to life and join you in that life. So they did believe in physical resurrection, but only once the Messiah came. And that, but that was because the nation itself had been resurrected. So resurrection was in the framework. The idea of sin has been dealt with through innocent blood and, and the substitute was already in the framework. So these are really, really important things so that when Jesus comes, their brains are already wired for that type of thinking. But because of their belief that the Messiah is going to be a human agent, never to suffer, they, they didn't make the connections between the two, the two things. And so in Israel's culture then, they had symbols to represent this whole belief system. Um, do you, uh, like, in our culture, um, what uh, symbols do you think represent who, what we believe? Think of landmarks or, or anything. Can you think of anything in our Canadian culture that makes us Canadian compared to other nations in the world? What do we, what do we, what symbols could you see, like, walking the streets and listening to people that would identify as a Canadian? <coughs> Flag, okay. <coughs> Maple syrup, pretty sad symbol. Roots, roots, <laughs> yeah, totally. Hockey, hockey, absolutely. How about character-wise? Oh, I mean, yeah. We say sorry too yeah. much. Yeah, we say sorry too much. <laughs> 
A. Pardon me? A. A. How do you spell Canada? C A D A N A. Yeah, pretty sad symbols when you start talking out loud, isn't it? We don't really have a lot to like identify ourselves. Like, what we we probably do, but a peace, like we're supposed to be a peaceful peaceful keeper. Okay, let me give you the symbols now. Um, this is like basically the, the this will finalize kind of like the, the message today. But let me give you the symbols of Israel. And when I show you these symbols, these things you're going to see how in sim like everything I've just talked to you about their theology and their their belief system. How it was, it was obvious in their symbols. Obvious in their symbols. The first one was the temple. The temple was the focal point of all, uh, of all Jewish life. It covered 35 acres and was 25% of the city's surface area. A quarter of the city's surface area was a temple. I mean, you talk about, I mean, imagine Calgary taking the city, the city surface area and the city center and having one structure down there that took one quarter of the, of the space. I mean, that would say something about the importance of that building in, uh, in, your, in your city, into your nation. Um, they believed it was a dwelling place of God, like a little mini cosmos, like a little mini world in itself with the heavens and earth like, there. And uh, everything about the way they dressed, the, 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 uh, the, the furniture, the... Um, like the cups and all the washings and all the things they had there were just depictions of, of uh, God's universal rule. Uh, it was a center for sacrificial systems, so when you went there, you would understand that that's where sin was dealt with. Um, it was a center for government too. Israel's financial and economic world also functioned out of there. So the temple was a massive point. The land, the land belonged to uh, God and the people were the tenants of this land. So if you were to ask people in our country, who owns your land? You'd say, we do. If you're an Israelite, God does. And we just happen to be here and we're taking care of it for God. That's, that's the difference between an Israelite and a Canadian in that way. Um, and his holiness was spread out from the temple all over the land. And they also believed that it was uh, defiled by the Romans who were, who were occupying it. And the Torah, which is the five books of the Bible, um, the five first, five, first five books of the Bible, and then included the prophets uh, later, um, and the Psalms and whatnot. This was basically um, Israel's covenant character, and it was in intimately linked with regulating the temple and the land. Like in the Bible, in those first five books of the Bible, it told you how to take care of the land. It told you how to like, operate with other people. It told you what to do in the temple. Like everything, it was an instruction manual for how to operate as an Israelite, both in the land and in the temple. So the, 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 the Torah was an amazing uh, a piece, of, a amazing symbol to the Jewish people. And um, yeah, it was obviously fundamental. And we can, if, you know, we call it the Bible now. But so you can just think too, like how does, what regulates your life as a Christian? Well, how you regulate your life in terms of like how you worship and who you, you know, how you operate in life will be the God's scriptures and what Israelite was the same way. And the last symbol was a racial identity. So you were, you had, you were certain things that you did to racially make yourself identifiable and you separated yourselves from other people. Can you think of a couple of them? What was absolutely necessary as a Jewish person to make yourself racially distinct from other people? Kippah. Pardon me? No. <laughs> Maybe now. <laughs> 
think that's what he just said. That's what he said. You got a bunch of thoughts in your congregation. Okay, circumcision. Yeah, circumcision. Remember, why, why did God want to kill uh, Moses on the way to, uh, take, take, uh, to lead the people out of Egypt? His son had been circumcised, and he says, Moses, I'm going to take you out unless you get your son circumcised. And so his wife goes and does it. So circumcision was a massive deal. Told Abraham, if you don't get circumcised, and, you're, and, the, and your people along your lines, you're going to be cut off from my covenant. Major, major piece of issue. When Antiochus Epiphanes came in to take out the temple and take out Jerusalem and to rule the people, remember what I just told you? The reason why he killed the children and women was their, their willingness not to stop circumcising. That's a major, major thing. In, uh, and now you can see why Paul also got thrown out of every synagogue he went into in, when he went in the, in the New Testament. Because he started teaching that circumcision wasn't necessary to be, to be part of God's community. So, you know, you can see why Paul had so many tensions. Um, so that'd be one. Sabbath observance would be one. Again, why did Jesus have so much problems? Because he would heal on the Sabbath. And they were strict of Sabbath servers. And they had also food laws that they would do. And why did they have a hard time with Jesus? Because he says, I declare all things uncle uh, unclean, clean to you. And all of a sudden, they're eating foods now that Jesus, that the Torah said not to and so basically, um, the Sabbath, the food laws, and the circumcision were all major, major things, as well as their appropriate bloodlines. Uh, they were to avoid intermarriage to protect the, the people's bloodlines. And finally, though, um, their praxis, we'll just go through this quickly. That means how they lived this, these things out. Uh, in their worship, they had certain prayers that they did daily. Um, and we'll get into those. And then their festivals, uh, they had three festivals, Passover, Feast of Weeks, and Tabernacles. And then they added their own. And these are, these are two important ones for you to understand, and I'll, and I'll tell you why in a second here. One was Hanukkah and the Feast of Dedication. Now, what's interesting is we're, and we're gonna come in John, really quickly here in my sermon series, to Jesus healing uh, Lazarus, healing Lazarus from the dead. The question is, what feast did that occur on? It was not in one of the three feasts that was required by God in the Old Testament. It was on Hanukkah, the Feast of Dedication. It's not even listed in the Bible as a, a Jewish feast to observe by God. But it was one added by the Jewish people later. When was it added? After Antiochus Epiphanes set himself up in the temple, the Maccabean revolt, he's, this guy Joseph Maccabees took him out and had victory over him. And they, they made this holiday called Hanukkah in celebration of this guy who redeemed Israel from this antichrist type figure. Well, we're gonna see Lazarus being raised on Hanukkah and the Feast of Dedication. I'm gonna teach you then why that is so significant. What does this holiday represent in the Jewish life in terms of what do they believe? And why did Jesus do the raising of the dead man on that day? There's a an incredible spiritual link between why he healed them that, that, that holiday and what it meant to a Jewish person, what, and what Jesus was making to them as a statement about why he did what he did. And again, they missed it, but regardless. Um, the other one was, uh, remember um, in Esther, when the, uh, Haman wanted to kill all the Jewish people, and uh, Esther and Mordecai got, uh, had a plan, they got this plan together to basically redeem um, 
well, they didn't know if it was going to work, but they had this plan that they were going to try to help their own Jewish people getting exterminated. Haman's plot gets uncovered, and he gets executed and saves the Jewish race from desecration. He was kind of like the first Hitler in a lot of ways. He had the same plans as Haman did. And uh, they, uh, they had a Feast of Purim, that's what it was called, after Haman's plot was reversed. So again, the, the Jews added their own holidays later, and then they continued to operate in those feasts once Jesus showed up. Um, Jesus was actually living during those feasts and festivals and was, was going through them and dealing with them. Anyhow, those are, that's, basic, that's the basic premise. And, I, and the reason I bring all this up to you is just basically to say that, again, I, I, I want you to see this narrative, this story, so that you understand exactly why Jesus had such a hard time with the people. Such a hard time. You, you know, the, why, here's, here's one of the biggest things that yeah, I want you to take away. When they were exiled from, from into Babylon, why were they exiled? Do you know why God said, I've had enough of you, you got, you're getting smited? Pardon me? Yeah, disobedience to what? Which, which symbol in the, which symbol? Torah. You're disobedient to Torah, you're disobedient to my ways, you're going to get excommunicated and taken out and judged, you're going to die for it. Like, it was a major, major thing. Now, Jesus comes along, and according to the Pharisees, who are the teachers of Torah, he's now telling them to do what according to their, their belief system. They're, Jesus is teaching opposite to Torah. The very thing that God judged them for, the very thing God judged them for was disobedience to it. And now Jesus comes along and he's teaching them from their point of view to disobey it. Do you see now why there's so much hatred for him? It wasn't just simply, well, we have a disagreement over like, a, a mis- like an, an understanding, a little misunderstanding. This is a major thing. If God is going to come back and restore the temple, if he's going to do that and get us out of exile and back into restoration... We need someone to lead us who's willing to be completely loyal to God's word. We need that. And Jesus was now saying, you don't have to be loyal to God's word, at least from their their interpretation. Same with Paul. Why do people have such a hard time with Paul? Because he comes along and says, by the way, you don't have to be a Jew to be, you can can be a Jew observing a law-free gospel. And the Jewish people can't handle them. And, they, and, and he lose, all the disciples lost their life over these issues. So again, but again, you have to understand that the Jewish mindset was you were exiled because of disobedience to God's word. Reinstatement to obedience to God's word will mean that God will come and restore you. And now Jesus comes along. I'm the one who's, I'm God. <laughs> I'm going to restore you. And it's by breaking, breaking Torah. And so they had a hard time with him. So anyway, I wish I could re-preach John start over because um, uh, we could I think do a lot better job in the first eight chapters but it is what it is and, and we can go from there but hopefully that will help you and that's just an introduction to Israel's story and what they believe and why.